Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received, on which you have, been, have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise you have been believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, Yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Whether then, whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there was no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each of each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of, of God to the Father. He has dis- destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him so that God may be all in all. It's a great Sunday, the day we celebrate the resurrection. And I want to ask the question, what did the resurrection accomplish? That's the question I want us to ponder. 
Now, some of you may know that, that I'm a mammal. Now, this is related to the question, right? I, uh, um, my daughter reminds me that I'm a mammal, uh, M-A-M-I-L, a middle-aged man in Lycra, a cyclist. <laughs> okay. And um, when she first told me that, I didn't quite know what to say. And a few years ago, I was riding in tandem with a bunch of cyclists along Rosevere's Drive, and the rider next to me, who was in his 20s, asked what I do for a living. Now, that, that, can, either be, that can either kindle a conversation or kill a conversation when you're a pastor. And it turned out that this fellow had grown up in a home where no one went to church and read the Bible, and it actually kindled a conversation. He'd begun dating a Christian from work and had started going to a church and reading the Bible. But whenever they sang or the pastor preached or he read in the Bible that Jesus had risen from the dead, he, something troubled him. He just it niggled away at him. And I asked him why. And he simply looked across at me and said, I'm a doctor and dead people don't come back to life. I've never forgotten that. He was, he was just, he wasn't aggro about it, he was just honest. He'd seen many people die. He'd tried valiantly to save people from dying and he knew that dead people just don't come back to life. Now, he knew that. What followed then was an amazingly positive conversation about the significance of Jesus' resurrection. We're riding along on our bikes and we're talking about this very chapter. I raised it with him. I didn't quote chapter and verse or anything like that, but the contents of it I used as a means of discussing why it was so important to think that Jesus had risen from the dead, not just to think it, but to believe it. Now, this doctor's reaction to the idea of the resurrection is typical of people, both modern and ancient. It was only last Sunday we heard about those people in first century Athens, the men who gathered together to discuss things in the town square. And and when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Today is Easter Sunday, and like every Sunday, we meet to worship Jesus of Nazareth, the resurrected King of the Jews, their long-awaited Messiah, and to declare that he is God eternal, God's eternal Son, and our Lord and our God and the Saviour of the world. That's why we come on a Sunday. So let's listen again to the claims that we've just heard from that great New Testament chapter on the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. Just just some simple things. By this gospel you are saved, verse 2. By this gospel you are saved. Verse 22. All will be made alive. All will be made alive. Verse 24, then the end will come. That's the end of this age, what we may call the end of this world. Verse 26, death will be destroyed. 
death will be destroyed. Now, they are some amazing claims. By this gospel you're saved, all will be made alive, that's all who believe will be made alive. Then the end, the appointed end of history will come and death will be destroyed. Wow. We better make sure that we have our gospel facts straight we understand the importance of this and the significance of it if this is the means through which people get saved and if this is the the thing on which we pinned our hopes so Paul begins his argument with a strong reminder of the priority and power of this true gospel and he he begins first of all with Corinthians because he just said I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. So he begins with them. Then he goes on to the facts undergirding the gospel, the thing that the first apostles, the apostles testified to. He says, what I received, I passed on to you as a First importance, primary importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and he goes and lists a whole variety of circumstances where the resurrected Jesus appeared to people. So he's talking about the Corinthians pinning their hopes on this gospel. He then talks about the facts undergirding this gospel and there's there's four of them he says Christ died for our sins he was buried he was raised on the third day and he appeared to many people at various times most of whom are still here and can testify to it but some have died and then he says this is what we preach and this is what you believed So having recounted it all, he then begins to drive it home to them and he says, this is what we preach and this is what you believed. The content of Paul's gospel is that Christ died for our sins, just like the Bible said, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, as the Bible declares, and he appeared to many people. And he lists them. And it shows that the, these four truths undergird the hope that we have in Jesus who died, was buried and rose again that we might be forgiven and that we might be saved and come into a relationship with God and that we might have a relationship with him that can even smile in the face of death and say, death, where is your sting? grave where is your victory so as we think about this I just want us to to work through this chain of reasoning that that Paul gives us he shows how crucial Jesus resurrection is for this gospel to have the actual power to save us if if there is no resurrection if it didn't actually happen then the gospel is robbed of its power because how can a dead person do anything if Jesus is still dead how can he be king how can he save what can he possibly accomplish 
And he does this by asking a series of interconnected if-then type questions, peeling back layers of consequences that help us to get to the eternal significance of Jesus' resurrection. So let's just look at the chain of reasoning. It's, It's actually not difficult, but it's profound. So verse 12, he says, but If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So we get back to the question of this doctor, don't we? Dead people don't rise. If there's no such thing as resurrection, then Jesus is included in that no such thing as resurrection. So if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then he starts to ramp it up and he says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So I can say to you confidently today that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, I am utterly wasting my time standing up here and saying anything to you. My preaching is just emptied of all purpose and power. And if you happen to believe in, in Christ and he has not been raised from the dead, your faith would actually be in vain. Be a hopeless faith. A futile faith. And then he says more than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Now remember, this is a Jew speaking. He'd received the commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not take the Lord, the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall not bear false witness against the Lord. Now it's an extremely serious charge for a Jew to, to say something about God that is obviously not true. And he says, we're found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he did raise Christ from the dead. So this comes back to the heart of the gospel. This is what Paul constantly preaches everywhere he goes. He preaches that God raised his son from the dead and that by his resurrection we have the completion of our hope the forgiveness of our sins and we can enter into a relationship with a living saviour so we have a living hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then he says, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Wow. If there's no substance to the resurrection, then there's no substance to our faith. We've got nothing to build the foundation of our life on, nothing really to look forward to, because the rug is pulled out from underneath it. And then he says, if those who've fallen asleep, and those who've fallen asleep are lost... Now, what he means by those who've fallen asleep is those who've died resting in the hope of the resurrection. So they've been laid in their grave as if in their bed, awaiting the resurrection morning. 
and they've been laid in their bed, in their grave, as it were, hoping and trusting that God's word is true and that they will be raised from the dead. Those who've fallen asleep would be lost if there's no resurrection. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, then we are to be pitied more than all people. Pitied more than all people. Because we've been planning our lives and basing our hopes on a vapour, on dreams that have no foundation, on a lie. And so there would just be nothing to it. So the heart of my thoughtful young cycling friend's thinking was this. Why would these otherwise likeable and apparently intelligent people stake their lives and future on the absurd idea that Jesus rose from the dead? If everyone knows that dead people don't rise, why would these people think it's so important to believe, sing about and preach that Jesus rose from the dead? I think that, when you think about it, is an excellent question. He's thinking through the implications and he's wanting to know. Why exactly do we believe, sing about, like we've just done, and proclaim, as I'm now doing, that Jesus rose from the dead and lives forevermore? Why? I think the the answer is really quite simple. Because it's true. It actually happened. It's not a fairy tale. There were eyewitnesses of these things. It actually happened. Our salvation depends on it. Do you and I truly believe that Christ has been raised from the dead for the forgiveness of our sins that, and that through this, God has really secured for us a living hope and eternal life? Is that Have the tentacles of of those facts reached your heart? Do they go down and filter through in your thinking to start to grab a hold in your consciousness and in your awareness, right down even into your emotions, so that you believe these things and you actually count on them? You actually trust that he who promised is faithful and will do it. In fact, he has done it. He has raised his son from the dead. So we've been considering the negative implications if we don't, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead. Paul then moves on to positively assert that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And he says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Now let's think, who's saying this? It's Paul. What do we know about Paul? Well, probably the most characteristic thing that we know is that one day he was on a horse with some soldiers and they were going to a town called Damascus in order to arrest Christians. He was a persecutor of Christians. And all of a sudden, there was like a glowing ball of light that was brighter than the noonday sun and his horse reared up and he fell off and a voice spoke to him from the heavens and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And he was blinded and didn't eat for three days. It had a profound effect upon this guy. So he, he knows Christ is risen. 
He says, Christ is indeed risen from the dead. So I've encountered him. And he's just listed a number of other people who encountered him, like Peter and James and the women at the tomb, etc. And he appeared at one stage to more than 500 at once. So it wasn't just the odd delusion here and there, unless it was just a collective delusion. So this is stated by an actual eyewitness. And he speaks with some deep convictions. And he says, so, so what exactly is the significance of this. And he says, Christ is the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Okay, first fruits, fallen asleep. What's he getting at? Let's look at those who've fallen asleep. It's just an idiom for death. The death of believers who are laid to rest in their graves, like in their beds, as I mentioned, expecting to awaken like in the morning of the resurrection, just like we get up in the morning. So that's a common phrase, you come across it in Thessalonians as well, amongst the early Christians, that you fall asleep in Jesus. You die trusting in the Lord. Now, first fruits. What's first fruits? It refers to the Jewish practice of presenting the first harvest pickings from their gardens, from their orchards, from their fields... To God, they would take the first bit of the harvest, the first actual pickings of the harvest were dedicated back to God. So they did the same with their sheep and cattle. The firstborn that opens the womb was dedicated back to God. So think about it. First only makes sense in the context of there being something else. If you finish first in a race, someone else finishes second, third, etc. If you're the firstborn in your family, then you must have some siblings. Otherwise, you're an only child. And we see this in Colossians 1.18 where Jesus is said to be the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. The firstborn. So we who believe in and follow Christ now are guaranteed a share in the resurrection to come. Jesus' resurrection, being the firstborn from among the dead, means that I too, at the last day, will follow him and the full harvest is going to come in. God's going to reap and garner the full harvest into his barn. He is the firstborn And God will raise us up too in his own time and admit us into his presence. In fact, he's already written our names in his birth register, hasn't he? The book of life, not death, the book of life. The Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Our names are written with his blood in the book of life. So if Adam's sin led to estrangement from God and his death was the first death by divine cursing, then Jesus' death was the first death where the divine curse was overturned so that death becomes the doorway back into God's presence. The Lord said to the serpent, Cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, literally seed, and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. 
Adam named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. She would become the mother of all the living. Now, Jesus was the true seed of Eve, promised by God when he cursed Adam and Eve after the fall. Later on, this would be given further shape with Abraham, when God declared to Abraham, through you, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And Galatians 3.16 tells us, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture does not say, and to seeds, meaning many people, but, and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. So the promise to Eve, the promise to Abraham, was all about Jesus. Just like Paul's been saying here, according to the scriptures, just like the scriptures have predicted long ago, Jesus rose from the dead. And this casts light on the nature of the gospel for us. Why the gospel works, how it works to transform us. In John 12, Jesus talks, he uses a strange kind of analogy for us. He talks about a grain of, of wheat dying and falling to the ground, some seed. There were some Greeks, or that's Gentiles, non-Jews, among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we'd like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So the, these couple of, uh, of disciples come to Jesus with the request on behalf of these Gentiles who are at a Jewish feast wanting to know and wanting to see Jesus. And Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus said these things in response to Gentiles coming. He's saying, this message of the gospel isn't just for the Jews, it's for us too. Of course the Greeks could come and see me, he's saying. I'm about to die and rise again and it'll fulfill the promise to Abraham that through him all the families of the earth will be blessed, not just the Jews. So Jesus' resurrection is the first of a worldwide harvest of righteousness to be reaped from amongst Jews and Gentiles. And the first one to be eternally resurrected is Jesus. That makes him different from Lazarus because Lazarus was resurrected before Jesus was, but Lazarus isn't with us anymore. He died again. The widow's son died again. But Jesus rose from the dead never to die again. He, he is the first of the eternal resurrection. What we look forward to after we die, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He is the resurrection and the life. Jesus' death is like a seed that falls to the ground and is covered by earth. We even say it in the grave, don't we? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. 
to await the resurrection at the last day. So Jesus was like a seed falling into the ground, dust to dust, only to germinate and bear many seeds. Without Jesus' resurrection, there's no germination of faith. In fact, the resurrection is the germination of new life that generates our new birth, that ushers in the fruit of the Spirit, that, that guarantees our own coming resurrection. And this is precisely what Paul goes on to say. He says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Wow. So we can be sure and certain of our own resurrection by God's promise, being confirmed through the fact of Jesus' resurrection. Adam's curse is overtaken by the blessing of Jesus' life. Quite simply, Jesus' resurrection is the cornerstone of a whole new world. It lays the sure foundation for life and hope and becomes the first stone laid in God's living temple. A holy people who repent of their cursed sin before God and trust in the free offer of God's own righteousness made available through Jesus' life, death, burial and resurrection. So we've, we've come, we have confidence, not just in this life, but for the life to come. That's worth singing about. That's worth praising. So to wrap things up, Paul is saying that without a doubt, the risen Christ is at work in people's lives. He prays for us, he does the Father's will and he works to fulfil the Father's plans to usher in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He's gone to prepare a place for us. How can a non-resurrected person do that? How can a dead person do that? just can't happen. So life comes to us through Jesus' death and resurrection. How could someone who remains dead give us new life? Jesus' resurrection is the first of many more to come. The significance of being the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus was resurrected in order to reign over all God's enemies. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And it began with Jesus' resurrection. And it'll finish, and the last enemy to be destroyed will be death, when God raises us up at the last day. And then death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. Wow. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate outcome of Jesus' resurrection will be the death of death itself. Death will be executed. Death will be sentenced and banished forever to be apart from God and outside of this world and be away and be done, done away with. Death is swallowed up by life. Can I sense faith and confidence in the Lord rising in our hearts today? Can I sense that? Perhaps you are daring to believe for the first time ever that he who's begun a good work in you will complete it 
at the day of Jesus Christ. It's undergirded by a promise that cannot be broken because Jesus was raised from the dead. He who promised is faithful and will do it. Maybe you're experiencing the second, third, fourth or 95th surging of confidence in your heart that he who raised Christ from the dead will raise up your body immortal at the last day, never to die again. Maybe you've, you've sensed that in the past but it's kind of got buried a bit or the forcefulness of it is not as fresh and new as it once was. But God is calling us, saying, listen, hear what I'm saying to you. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You enter into faith in him and you too will be well pleasing in my sight. What I've done to him in raising from the dead, I'll do to you and raise you from the dead. Perhaps you're realising that today your service and your sacrifice in the Lord's name over the years is not and will not be in vain. Because you will hear from the Master at the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Maybe that's coming home to you. Or maybe there's a heartfelt Amen, forming on your lips for the first time in a very long time. Amen, yes, I believe this. As you bless God for such a glorious hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Perhaps there is even rising up within you an overwhelming desire to sing hallelujah to the Lord. And to, the, to God and to the Lamb who was slain, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. If you can in any way relate to what I'm saying, then you're in great company. Because chapter 15 concludes with death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Is not in vain. I often take heart from Romans 8:11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal body through his spirit who lives in you. These are things that the resurrection of Jesus has accomplished. Do we believe it? Do we really believe it? Can I actually begin to hear a slight amen maybe? Even a hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full and we we want to say, blessed be your name. You are the Lord God Almighty who was, who is and who is to come. The living and the true God. We thank you for the death of death and hell's destruction, 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We thank you for the promise made secure to us through Christ's resurrection from the dead, the firstborn of many brothers and sisters. Oh, we thank you, Father, for the living hope, that our hope is not in vain, that people who witnessed these things, witnessed Jesus alive again, have written them down, that we might believe and that we might have eternal life. Thank you for your word, your word of truth. Thank you that these things are according to the scriptures, that they are not according to human logic, they're not according to what we've made up, but what you have revealed and declared that we might have life, have it more abundantly. Thank you, Lord. Breathe hope and encouragement afresh into your people, Lord. Help us to take our stand on these truths of the gospel and to believe the things most surely believed among us, that we would believe them with all our heart, And that we would say, yes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, who died and rose again. A king who reigns forevermore. A saviour who can redeem from the uttermost. A God who hears and answers prayer. Offering a throne of grace to which we can draw near and find mercy and grace to help us in the hour of need. Because Christ is raised from the dead. Thank you. Blessed be your name, Lord. May we sing with all our heart and mean it. Amen.